Well, thank you, Rosemary, for that lovely song. And Steve, wherever you are, you're the only pastor I've ever met who sorted out his toolbox on Sabbath. (laughs) And in church, too. (laughs) But I'm glad I'm not the only guy who doesn't know what half his tools are for. Well, it's a bit like old times this morning. I was reflecting during the week, as many of us do, when uh, our hair has changed colour. And I realised that uh, it is 35 years since I first stood here and shared God's word with this congregation. That's half a lifetime, isn't it? It would be more accurate to say, with the congregation that worshipped here, 35 years ago because it's not the same congregation no congregation is the same possibly for any two weeks there are always some people away or some visitors or somebody here for the first time but I'm glad to be here again this morning and to be able to share God's word with you It's always a pleasure, and it's always a privilege. I want to ask you to, to use your imagination to begin with this morning. Just suppose that you woke up one morning, reached for your Bible, opened it, and to your horror you discovered that during the night a virus had been at work. And as you open the pages of your Bible, you find that many of them are blank. There's nothing left. The virus has eaten everything. Whole pages have gone. Whole chapters have gone. Whole books have disappeared. In fact, there are only about 25 texts left in the whole Bible. It haunts you all day. You think about it. You wonder what had happened. Next morning you awoke, reached for your Bible again, apprehensive, and when you open it, you discover that the virus has been at work again. Now there are only five texts left in the whole of the Bible. In the Old Testament, there is Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And with his stripes, we are healed. Four more texts in the New Testament. You memorize them. You make sure that you will never forget them because you don't know what's going to happen tonight. When you awoke on the third morning, there is only one text left in the entire Bible. The, 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 New Test, the Old Testament completely vanished. <coughs> John 3.16, not there. Acts 4.12, gone. 
Ephesians 4.8, no longer there. 2 Corinthians 5.21, disappeared. Only one text left in the Bible. It contains the gospel according to Jesus. That text, that one text, understood, believed, accepted, and remembered, would be enough to ensure everyone in this congregation this morning and in every other congregation worshipping this Sabbath day, enough to ensure eternal life and a place into the kingdom of glory. Read it with me. It doesn't matter which version it's in because they all say the same thing. John 14, verse 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Every text has a context. It says here that Jesus said to him, to Thomas, to be precise, because Thomas has asked a question, how can we know the way? He'd actually done more than that. He'd contradicted Jesus in the presence of the other disciples. This conversation began actually in chapter 13 because it took place on the night of the Last Supper. So there were all the disciples. And Thomas, I, I don't know what happened to Thomas, whether he'd been asleep or, or what, but Jesus had just told the disciples where he was going and the way to get there. And Thomas says, but Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Well, Jesus had already answered the question the conversation began in verse uh, 36 of the previous chapter where Peter asks virtually the same thing. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but now, but you shall follow me afterward. And then it comes to the climax of the message in chapter 14. Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So where I go, you know. And the way you go, you know. 
And then poor old Thomas pipes up, but Lord, where are you going? Jesus was going to the Father's house. This is all about the way home. The way to the Father's house. The way to God. The way to eternal life and to eternity. Jesus says, I am going to heaven to my Father and I'm coming back to take you. Well, it's pretty clear to me. I don't know where Thomas had been. But let's be generous. Maybe Thomas had heard it, but he hadn't understood it. There are many people like that. There may be someone here this morning who has heard it, maybe heard it many times, but never really understood it. There are many people like that. I've met some of them. I know they exist. So Jesus says, once again, Jesus says, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back. And Peter and Thomas just don't get it. Now this is the context of this great text this morning. So Jesus says, well, what does Jesus say? He says, I am. I am. This is one of the seven great I am statements that Jesus makes in the Bible. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And so on. And all these seven great I am sayings are recorded in John. No other gospel mentions them. Why John? Because John's gospel was written for a different purpose than the other three gospels. It was written a generation later. Times had changed. The other three gospels were written to make it absolutely clear that Jesus was real, that he was a real human being. John's gospel was written for a different purpose. It was written to explain that he was divine. That's why that gospel is so relevant today. Many people today believe that Jesus existed. Most of them think he was a good man, a good teacher, but very few of them really believe that he was divine, the divine Son of God. So John is relevant to us today, and maybe what Jesus is saying here is also relevant to our society. He is trying to 
John is trying to stress the divinity of Jesus. And so he begins with these two words. I am. Where did those words come from? These words first appear early in the Bible at a critical moment in the history of God's chosen people. They were enslaved in Egypt and God had called Moses from the midst of the burning bush and he says to Moses, Moses, I am sending you to be the leader of my people, to bring them out of Egypt. And Moses says to God, well, how will I convince them of that? Who shall I say is sending me? Reasonable questions. Moses wants to know. He wants to be sure that when he goes back to the children of Israel, they don't say that he's been off with the fairies. And God said on that occasion, and I'm reading Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The Lord of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, and in my Bible, the next few words are all in capital letters. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, say, I am has sent you. I am the name of the one who is eternal, eternally present, the one who is also eternally past and eternally future, the self-existent one, he who was and is and will be, That's how God wanted to be known. The only true God. He wanted the people to know him as the eternal one. The unchanging God. You and I have to say, I am that which I was born or I am what I have become, or I am the product of my genetic inheritance. He says, I am. So when Jesus uses these two words, at the beginning of these great sayings, what he is actually doing is asserting his divinity. He is identifying himself deliberately and repeatedly with the great I am, the eternal self-existent God, 
the great Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said of this text, the fire that burns and does not burn out, which is not destroyed by its own energy or consumed by its own activity, is a symbol of the one being whose existence derives from itself. The only one who can say, I am that I am. This being is underived, absolute, self-dependent, unalterable, forevermore. His resources are inexhaustible, his power unwearied. He gives and is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. He loves and loves forever. And throughout the ages, the fire burns on, unconsumed and undecayed. And Jesus says, I am. I am he. And he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. We need to be clear about this because there is both mystery and certainty here and we need not to be over certain about mystery. It seems that it's clear enough that Jesus is talking about the way to the Father as we have already noted, the way to God, And it is clear that the key is in verses 2 and 3 that we have already read, where Jesus says in John 14, 2 and 3, that he is going uh, back to the Father to prepare a place for those who will follow him. I first learnt these verses by heart when I was about 13 years of age. We had to do it in what was called in those days JMV, Some of you may remember those days, junior missionary volunteers, when we had to learn a number of texts in the Bible by heart. Well, I did that just like a parrot so that I could repeat it. But I didn't think about it much in those days. I've thought about it since. I've thought about it a great deal. Jesus is talking about the way to God, to where God is. But where is that, precisely? And what is it? Let me press the question a little bit further. How can there be many mansions in one house? Other versions say dwelling places. Well, that makes it sound like some huge apartment building somewhere up there in the sky. Apartments, dwelling places, mansions. 
We realized many years ago that there are no bricks and mortar in heaven. And anyway, it is impossible to imagine any building large enough to provide dwelling places for the countless millions through the ages from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob onward who have believed the great I Am and who will one day go to live with Him. Well, no wonder Thomas was perplexed. Solomon had actually caught a glimpse of the reality when he was building the temple. He asks this question, but will, in God, will God indeed dwell on earth, he says? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. The I am, much less this temple which I have built, that was Solomon. Isaiah hits the nail on the head when he says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, I dwell also with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. God inhabits eternity. So where are the many mansions? Where actually has Jesus gone to prepare a place for everyone who believes? G. Campbell Morgan was one of the great Bible students of the 20th century. During World War II in the 1940s, he delivered a series of 63 studies in uh, Westminster Chapel in London, which incidentally, for those of you who are interested, is not far from Buckingham Palace. When Campbell Morgan preached, the chapel was always full because this man was a great student of the Word. His studies have, were later published under the title The Parables and Metaphors of Our Lord. And I'd like you to listen to what he says about John 14. He says, what is the meaning of it all? To those men questioning the beyond and yet earthbound in their vision and thinking, he was going away. They said, when he is gone, we've lost him. Then, listen to this, then he gave them the universe in a flash, my father's house. In that universe there are many dwelling places. This earth is one, but it is not the only one. Somewhere out there in the vast house of God, that vastness which battles us, somewhere that we cannot understand, he is going to prepare a place for us in the house of God, the one who inhabits eternity, the whole universe. 
Does that remind you of anything this morning? Have you ever heard anything like that before? Great Controversy, page 677. There, immortal minds will contemplate with never-failing wonders the wonders of creative power, the mysteries of redeeming love. Every faculty will be developed, every capacity increased. There, the grandest enterprises may be carried forward, the loftiest aspirations reached, the highest ambitions realized, and still there will arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend. All the treasures of the universe will be open to the study of God's redeemed. Unfettered by mortality, they wing their tireless flight to worlds afar, with unutterable delight, the children of earth enter into the joy and wisdom of unfallen beings. The Father's house, the, the house of him who inhabits eternity. I don't understand all that, I have to be honest. But I do know this, that wherever the Father's house is, whether it's literal or symbolic or figurative, whether it contains the whole universe or is just a special place up there somewhere in heaven, wherever it is, I know one thing, dear friends, that is that Jesus is the way there. I am the way. The way. There is no other. I am the truth. The word truth occurs in John more than in any other book in the New Testament, 25 times. Here is one of them. Jesus is standing before Pilate. John 18:37 Pilate therefore said to him are you a king Jesus answered you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth everyone who is of the truth hears my voice There are two things we need to notice here Firstly, the reason Jesus came into the world. There are many answers to that question. Why did Jesus come into the world? Well, he came to bring salvation. He came to go to the cross. He came to overcome Satan. He came to bring forgiveness. They're all true. But the reason that underlines them all is stated here. He came to bear witness to the truth. The second thing we need to notice 
is that truth is contained in words. It's hard to overemphasize it. Truth is communicated through words. Written words and spoken words. Without words, we could never have truth. We could never understand it. We could never explain it. We could never pass it on. We hear a lot today when some people talk about propositional truth, which they don't like. It's unfashionable. It doesn't go with the flow. I hear it sometimes even within the church. It sounds smart, but it isn't really smart at all. In fact, it reveals a degree of ignorance. And it completely overlooks these words of Jesus. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And what does a voice do? It speaks words. So Jesus says to Thomas and to us, I am the truth. My words are true. This is why I came into the world. But we have to remember that truth is also more than words, more than ideas, more than arguments, more than statements which can be explained theologically or biblically. Because I read also in John chapter 1 verse 14, and I know you've heard this before as well, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. The truth can be seen as well as heard. Some of the old philosophers used to say of truth, it can, it can be like the light to sore eyes. It can be seen so hear Jesus, my friends, again this morning when he says, I am the way and I am the truth. I am the truth as opposed to all other claims to truth that have ever been made. I am the truth as opposed to Judaism and the ideas of Greece or Rome. I am the truth that confronts the teachings of Hinduism Buddhism, and may we say Islam. I am the truth as opposed to half-truth, spin, fantasy, and personal ideas. I am the truth. I am the way I am the truth and I am the life.
We pause here for just a moment. It could be argued, by some at least, and with some justification, that all we have said this morning so far, we have heard before, in one way or another. After all, we know where Jesus went, in broad terms at least, if, even if we do not know all the details. We know the way to the Father, even if Thomas didn't. And we have a pretty good idea of truth. In fact, we are very keen on truth. We have worked hard through the years at defining the truth and expressing it in 28 very carefully crafted fundamental beliefs. So I could understand if some were thinking to themselves, well, I'm glad I settled all that years ago. I hope there wouldn't be many, but I could understand if there were some. But what would we say now when Jesus says, I am the life? You see, the truth and truths are one thing, and one of the truths is that we were all born dead and are dying. And we may have heard that before as well, but we can't change it. Do you know the main thing that distinguishes human beings from animals? Forget what evolutionists say. The main thing is the humans know they're going to die. We don't think about it much until you begin to live in the village. Then you begin to think about it a bit more. But that's the way it is. We're on our way to the cemetery. And so Jesus says to us, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Only those who are dead or dying need to hear that. And that's every single human being that's ever been born. Born spiritually dead and physically dying. They tell us from about the age of 25 we begin to die physically. Jesus says... I am the life. He also said, I am come that they may have life more abundantly. He's not only talking about the future, he's talking about the present. Millions, and, and I mean millions, 
can testify that their life is now richer, more meaningful, because of the difference Jesus has made. Their life has direction, purpose, understanding. All because of Jesus. Now, he has given them new life. And so Jesus says, over again and over again, as he said to Thomas, I am... I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I know this works. And I know that it still works. Many years ago, more than I care to remember, I was invited to take a week of prayer at Newbold College in England. That was before I went to teach there. That week, every morning and every evening, we discussed the life that is mentioned in the New Testament, the life that Jesus brings some of those great texts that we've mentioned this morning and many others that we haven't had time to mention and we went through them and explained them. I didn't know who was in the congregation that week. I didn't know for many years. But I learned later that there was one young lady who attended every meeting of that week of prayer She had uh, come to college with many questions, many doubts, as many young people do. Well, eventually she left college, got married, had a family. And one day, several years later, she went with her husband and family up into the mountain region of Wales. She got up early one morning, went for a walk. And when she didn't come, at, come back, they went to look for her. They found her mangled body lying by the side of the road. She'd been hit by a truck and dragged a hundred meters and left dead or dying. And the trucky never stopped. Many months, a couple of years in fact, after that, I received a letter in the mail from the UK. It was from her husband. He had been going through her papers, letters, and he found her notes on that week of prayer. And she described how she had gone to college with doubts and questions. But during that week, she had decided to accept Jesus and the life he offers. 
and her life was never the same again until it was snatched from her. She had found Jesus who says, I am the life. So this is the gospel according to Jesus. And if it were the only text in the Bible understood Believed, accepted, remembered, and lived by. It would be enough to see everyone in this congregation enter into the kingdom of heaven and dwell with Jesus and all the redeemed in those heavenly mansions, wherever they might be, for eternity. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey asks the question, why am I a Christian? And he says the answer boils down to one word, Jesus. The truth, the way, the life. I can put my hand up again this morning for that. And I hope you can too.